Matthew 17 is where we will be. I was reading, uh, I'm reading a book called Metachurch. It has to do with online uh, ministry. And in the book, written by a guy named Dave Addison, um, he, he, uh, his Adamson, he actually is called Aussie Dave online because he's from Australia. And um, he, he says, he, he asks a friend of his who's a, who is a Jew, he said, um, can you tell me why the Jews don't see Jesus as their Messiah? And he said, um, recognizing that Jesus was a Jew and a rabbi, he said, we Jews judge our rabbis by the behavior of their followers. Yeah, sucker punch, right? We Jews judge the behavior of our rabbi by the behavior of their followers. So obviously there's a lot there. And we could probably get a little defensive and go, well, there's no other religion that claims more people in the world today than Christianity. A third of the planet claims to be Christians, whether they are or not. And I know some really good people who happen to be Christians that would really bring honor to Jesus. But if we were honest and awake, <laughs> we would say there's a lot, of exa- a lot of evidence to the contrary that might make us go, oh, I can see why somebody might not choose to follow Jesus based on the behavior of the followers. Well, I can't do a whole lot about what anybody else thinks or how they live or act, but I can do something about how I act as a follower of Jesus. And so can you, for you. And so I'm going to ask us all to kind of get a little more honest with God and ourselves and just allow God to evaluate and and examine our hearts so that we might maybe recognize some things in our lives that need to change. It's kind of hard to do. It's what I hope happens every week. Um, but some weeks we're just a little more in tune than others. So I've just been praying that God would do that. You know, I, I haven't, I'm not going to talk about it today. I want to read and learn some more. But Asbury, Kentucky, there's apparently a revival going on in that university, that college there in Asbury, Kentucky. And I remember that place because we took a, a group of kids to summer camp there one summer, and I lost my, my Clemson ring there on that ultimate field, on that field playing ultimate. Um, This is not it. It's still there somewhere, I hope, Um, I think. But um, we also, we saw God do some neat things on that campus. It's it's, it's, um, named after Francis Asbury and the United Methodist Movement. So anyway, we'll wait and see. Maybe you can do some reading this week. We'll we'll look at it and see what God is doing. But the, the initial stories are are evidence of what could be considered genuine revival. And we, we, we probably need to talk and pray about what that is and what it means and why we don't see it around here and things like that. But for today, we're going to focus on just where, where am I as a follower of Jesus? Does my, if somebody were to follow me around last week and watch my behavior and listen to what I said and even knew my thoughts, would they conclude from my behavior that I was a follower of the Jesus that is written about here? That's a fair question. We probably all need to be willing to answer that and think about that. And, and here's the thing. No matter how bad you or I did last week, the Lord is faithful and he is merciful and wants to forgive and get us back on track. But there's a part of that that's a requirement on us before he can do that, before he will do that. So with that, let me, let me pray again and then we'll jump in. Lord, I just thank you for your word. It's, it's um, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
that all of us may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, I pray that today that would happen, that you would use these God-breathed words in us, that it, you might not just change our thinking, that you might change our thinking that leads to a change in belief, that leads to a change in behavior. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, we looked at the first 13 verses of chapter 17. I'm going to have to give you a quick review because I'm going to steal some words from that one and use them in this one that are pretty important, okay? So last week, we had the hike. Remember, uh, Peter, James, and John with Jesus go on a hike. They go up the big mountain in northern Galilee region, and lo and behold, Moses shows up, Elijah shows up, and God the Father shows up, and Jesus goes full light bright, and he's just, continue, just, just shining body of light, and um, th there's conversations, and it's quite the moment of worship for Peter, James, and John. <laughs> I cannot imagine that group being a part of that experience. But at the end of all of that, the cloud descends, and God the Father speaks, and he says four things. He says, this is my son, talking about Jesus, whom I love and am well pleased. And then he says this, listen to him. That's the phrase I want you to grab a hold of because I think that the words that follow in this chapter all play off of listen to him. All the words that I'm going to say, I want you to ask yourself the question, am I listening to him in that way? Okay, and we're going to look at four other ways. Last week, the one way we looked at was that when we treasure something, it transforms us. Right? If I, get, if I, if I am all about... Um, deep sea diving, and I immerse myself, <laughs> no pun intended, into the hobby of deep sea diving. I'm going to spend a lot of money on equipment. I'm going to spend a lot of money on learning how to do it and traveling down there and boats and guides and travel airline. I'm going to spend time and money, and I'm going to be transformed through that experience over time, so much so that some, sometimes I might even call myself a deep sea diver. You see here the identity in that? So um, there might be a, another, you know, sometimes, and this, there's, there's some legitimacy to this. Obviously, I told you the story about how I met my wife and, um, and that how that relationship, me treasuring her, transformed me and actually was part of leading me to Christ. Um, so, you know, it's important, what am I treasuring? What is that that I'm treasuring? It's important to know what that is and ask yourself, am I treasuring something I shouldn't be treasuring? And ultimately, we should be treasuring Christ. And when we treasure Christ, he transforms us and makes us more like him. But more like him through, the, through who we are as people, our personalities and our experiences and all the things that shape us, he, he works in and through those, okay? So that was really the big deal about last week. So listen to him is the takeaway today. Remember now, when we talked about this phrase, we said that when... when um, especially in the Old Testament, when the Bible talks about listening, the Bible is almost always talking about listening with a posture to do, okay? Um, let's think about a, a blank check, okay? For, so some of you don't know what a check is. A check is a little piece of paper about that shape, and, and you can use it to buy things sometimes. It's not as often as you... And basically, the way you use this piece of paper is special because it has your bank account information at the bottom, so you don't just give this out to anybody, you protect this, but when you decide you want to buy something, you say, I'm going to make this check out. You write who you want to buy something from. You write that name or, or business on there, and then you write the amount that you want to give them authorization to draw out of your account. 
and then you give them the, and then you sign it. That's the important part because that's the authorization. That's your, your authority is, is seen in that signature and you give them that piece of paper. So sometimes we talk about a blank check. So a blank check, you would not normally give a blank check to somebody unless you really trusted them because what you're doing is you're signing it, but you're not filling in the amount. Okay? And so that means you're letting that person have the power to actually write in the amount. So you better trust that person a lot. So for me to use that as, an, as, as a metaphor for giving God a blank check would be my, instead of signing out how much money I'm going to give him, I'm going to write in how much of myself am I going to give him. And so what I say, we need to be willing to give God a blank check, I'm saying we need to be willing to sign the check with the account numbers to my life and live and let God fill in what he wants from me. Okay, that's kind of what we're talking about. The whole song we just sang, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, right? It, all of this is tied together. The word all just continues, right? Our series is called All because Jesus has all authority so that all nations might pledge all allegiance to him. This is through everything that we're looking at. The foundation of our faith is about completely being, we, we like to use the phrase all in sometimes, you know, and it's like, I'm, I, that's a blank check mindset. And that's what, what you're going to see all the way through here. When God, the Father, says to the disciples, listen to him, he's saying, don't just listen and decide, oh, am I going to obey that or not? He's saying, sign the check of your life, hand it to him, and then you're listening with a posture to do whatever he puts in that line. Okay? And if you don't remember anything else, that's probably pretty good. But... There's more. All right. When they came to the crowd, who's they? I'm in verse 14 of chapter 17. They is Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming down from the mountain, mountaintop experience. They are fired up. They're probably a little bit glowing going on, and uh, they're just talking nonstop probably about all that they witnessed, or maybe they're silent and they're coming down just trying to process what they, I'm not sure which. When they came to the crowd, so they get to the bottom of the mountain where life is lived, by the way, for most of us, we live in the valleys. And they found a crowd of people, and a man approaches Jesus. So it says, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. So let's just kind of paint a picture here a little bit. There's 12 disciples, three of them leave with Jesus, okay? Now, these aren't random three. Jesus had a habit of culling out of the 12, three that he would pour a little bit extra into. Sometimes Andrew was in that, sometimes he wasn't. And so the nine that are left kind of have a little bit of a complex going on. It's like, why didn't I get to go? And I'm one of the greatest, and I don't understand why Peter always gets to go. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. You know, we don't know what they're running through their minds, but these are, these are 12 guys that argued about who was the greatest among them, okay? I mean, that's kind of like playing in a Christian basketball league and getting the Christ. It means you're the best in the league trophy. It's like, that seems a little backwards. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? So they're... They're left, and a crowd forms, and here comes this man. He wants his demon-possessed son to be delivered from this demon so that he will quit rolling into the cook fire or into the pond or wherever he is that threatens his life because this demon has such strength, it can control him and put, make him go into seizures and fling him all over the place. 
And I don't want to brush over this too lightly, but I am going to brush over it fairly lightly. But I'm not doing that because I don't believe demons are real. Demons are real just like they were then. They manifest in ways that are um, manifold, so many different ways. And, um, and we should take seriously that there's a spirit world that has angels and demons, and they're very real, and they're very active. And they're sometimes very subtle. In this case, they were not. But they can cause great, they can wreak havoc in the lives of people. Okay? Um, and so, uh, but the point here is, here is a father who is desperate for his son, and he doesn't really care whether it's a demon or a sickness or an illness. He just wants mercy for his son, and he comes to Jesus. Now, we're going to come back to this in a minute, but uh, um, I, want you, I want to talk a little bit about why. Uh, let me read a little more, and then we'll talk about why that didn't work. Verse 17, why Jesus then looks at the crowd. I don't think he's, I don't know, I don't think he's looking at the other nine disciples. I think he's looking at the crowd when he says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Meek and mild Jesus doesn't sound like to me. Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Two quick sidebars. One is, Jesus is human, and you hear his humanity in these words. You hear the emotion in these words, and we need to be okay with that. In fact, we need to be careful not to get so caught up in the stained glass Jesus that we miss the human Jesus. He was fully divine, and he was fully human, and he felt all the emotions you and I felt yet he did not sin. He was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. Second thing here is, and again, a sidebar, but he is showing frustration and impatience with these people that don't believe. Okay? I got to tell you, I'm sure he feels that way about me and, and sometimes maybe you, and sometimes I feel that way about other people too. Okay? But here's the thing. He still ministers to them. So I love that. But I'm, I digress. Verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. I don't know about you, but I don't have that kind of power, I don't think. I say I don't have that, but Jesus has that power, and he's given me that kind of power and authority. So in theory, I should be able to do that. The disciples knew they should be able to do that because if you remember back to Matthew 10, he sent the disciples out in pairs, and he said, go to the towns, look for the people of peace, heal the sick, Cast out the demons, and they came back to Jesus. And when they debriefed around the fire, roasting s'mores, they went, I cannot believe the demons listened to us. And they were all buzzing about that. And Jesus said, okay, okay, that's cool. Just make sure you don't forget that more importantly is your name's written in the book of life. But okay, that's exciting. So they expected to be able to deliver this boy from a demon, and they weren't able to. So naturally, the question that comes back in verse 19 is, and then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? A valid question. And Jesus gives them a straightforward answer. I love this. But, you know, this, I think there's a lesson in that too. Jesus speaks to the crowds more cryptically than he does to those who are devoted to him. I'll just let that one lie. Okay, so he, he says, so they came and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Verse 20, he replies, and I'm going to read through this quickly, and then we're going to pick it apart. Because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Okay, Jesus, so I'm a little confused. You tell the disciples they couldn't do this because they had little faith. Now, he didn't say they had no faith, 
although I do think there's a translation that says unbelief. And so I think I can explain that anyway. But anyway, let's go with a little faith for right now. Instead, you should have mustard seed size of faith. Well, what's, okay, how big is a mustard seed? Say, I don't know. Well, it's the smallest seed in the region in that time, okay? It's not the smallest seed in the world, but in their world, it was the smallest seed. So if they wanted to say something was really, really, really tiny, they didn't say grain of sand, they said mustard seed because it was even smaller. So wait a minute, Jesus, you're saying I couldn't cast it out because I had little faith, and you're saying instead I need to have mustard seed size faith. So it needs to be even smaller? I don't understand. And Jesus says it's not about the quantity, it's about the quality, okay? Now, it does matter that it's more than zero, okay? That was the crowd. We heard what he had to say to them, right? Uh, you unbelieving and perverse generation, okay? So I don't want that on my tombstone. All right, so a little faith. What's the difference between little faith and mustard seed kind of faith, okay? Now, if you go to the parallel passages in Mark and Luke, this is what the answer is. Jesus gives this answer. He says, this kind needs prayer. That was in Mark, I think. And in Luke, he says, this kind needs prayer and fasting. But Matthew doesn't say that because Matthew shows it, and maybe they do too, but Matthew's like, I'm just going to show you. Well, where does he show it? In the way the man prayed. Go back. Verse 14. When they came to the crowd and the man approached Jesus and knelt before him, Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. So the man gets down on his knees in the dirt before Jesus, and he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. And then he explains why. He humbles himself by getting down in the dirt, on his knees, in the midst of a crowd. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks. He just wants Jesus' attention because he wants Jesus to give mercy to his son. He calls him Lord because he recognizes that Jesus has some kind of authority that I've never seen. He doesn't have to know whether Jesus is part of the Trinity. He doesn't have to know whether Jesus is actually the eternal King of Kings or Messiah of Messiahs, but he knows something's different, and I need that mercy right now. And so, Lord, or whoever you want me to call you, have mercy on my son. Now, do you think that's how the other nine probably tried to cast out that demon and it didn't work? I don't think so. Okay? I think two things are important. One is the posture, humble, humility, and the object of your faith. Who are you actually resting in? I wouldn't be surprised if those nine guys were like, well, Peter, James, and John are gone. One of us is going to have to step up. Or maybe another disciple is like, oh, finally, I get my chance in line. I got this, comes Simon the Zealot. I got this. Bring him. Let's, let, me, let, me, let me get rid of this demon. I'll take care of him. Maybe coming with pride, maybe coming with, I want to look good in front of these others. And so now, who's the object of his faith? It sounds like it's himself and his experience, potentially. Now, I'm reading between the lines. Obviously, we don't know. The only thing we have to go on is the difference between how they prayed and how this man prayed. And he prayed with humility acknowledging Jesus for who he is to the best of his knowledge, and he believed that he was the source of the authority to make it happen. Okay? Do we pray like that? Do you pray like that? Maybe the reason we don't see moving mountains kinds of prayers is we don't pray like that. This man was desperate, and he was all in with this Jesus. We don't know how much he knew about Jesus. We just know 
He's like, and if he had walked away like Dave, if he had, like that Jew that Dave Addison's talked about, we judge our rabbis on the behavior of their followers. These nine would have not been a good showing for the day, right? But it didn't end with them, did it? Jesus shows, the other three come with him, and this is what happens. And so I don't want you to see here. Let's finish this out right here, this part. All right, so... Um, so we're at verse 20. He replied, because you have so little faith, then he says, truly I tell you, which means pay attention, write this down. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So he's saying it doesn't take much faith. It's not about the quantity of faith. It's about the quality of faith. You have to have some, but an infinitesimal amount of faith in an eternally powerful uh, eternally authorized God, I mean, do the, do the actual math. You get, you know, if you go 0.00001% times infinity, you still get infinity, okay? So the question for us is, are we listening to Jesus? Are we practicing a mustard seed kind of faith? Now, that was the one I'm going to spend the most time on. These next ones happen a little quicker. Verse 22, when they came together, so the scene moves along, when they came together in Galilee, so they must travel a little bit, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Stop there. Jesus is talking just to the 12, and he's telling them bad news for them because they're hearing that he is going to be arrested, and, and then verse 23 starts, they will kill him, meaning himself. And that's really all they heard. They didn't really hear the rest of, this, of it. You and I live in a day where our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to our faith. Okay? Now, we live in unprecedented times. Okay? I don't know that there have been a lot of times in history when we've had the um, positive influence and impact and resources available to us that we've had in the last 50, 100 years. Most of history following Christ was risky to your life. Okay? Even being baptized um, as an adult, even though you were sprinkled as an infant, could get you killed. That's how violent to follow Christ could be because some people were that way. It was, it was horrible. Some, there's just some horrible history. Okay? If you're, the reason they're so upset, well, let me just finish the verse. Let me show you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life, which they missed, because look at the reaction, and the disciples were filled with grief. They're focused on the fact that if Jesus goes down, we go down. Why? Because he's our rabbi and we're his disciples. That's what the 12, that's their mindset. And I imagine the 70 uh, disciples probably had the same idea, but the 12 are the ones that are with Jesus all the time. They're following him around. They're walking and literally um, to walk behind a rabbi, the word used was described as someone who walks behind that person so closely that the dust stirred up by his feet got on your clothing. That's how closely they were trying. They were saying they were going to follow the teachings, the words, ways, and works of Jesus. Okay, and that's what he calls us to do too. So maybe a question we might ask is: Is there any of Jesus's uh, dust on our clothing spiritually? Are we are we covered in the dust of Jesus's wake? Which should be uh, a good question to ask yourself. Okay, so. We live in a day when 
Jesus is becoming less popular. Certainly his bride, the church, is becoming less popular and being attacked. And and we just need to recognize this. If you say you're a Christian and you are truly trying to walk in the wake of Jesus, you're trying to follow him, you're going to be receiving the same treatment he received at some point. And it may not be to the extent, but we have to think about this, counting the cost and recognizing that it could happen. If you're going to live for Jesus, then you need to recognize that that could lead you down a road that could lead you to have to be imprisoned for him or even die for him. Are you okay with that? Have you ever considered that? Um, There's this question that rolls around uh, pretty often nowadays, and it's, if it were illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? Of being a Christian. In other words, do when people watch you, is your behavior reflective of your rabbi? Do, do you look like him? Do you sound like him? Do you speak like him? Obviously through your personality, but the things are, are very straightforward. Or do we exercise damage control ahead of time and, and, and we temper our following? This is what's being challenged here. Okay? So um, there's two things here that come with this. Listen to me. Listen to me means... Uh, first of all, am I, I need to decide whether or not I'm going to follow Jesus and walk the, be willing to walk the same path he walked, which was to a cross. Jesus said, if anyone come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and that's how you follow me. Or he doesn't say it that way. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Or deny yourself, take up your cross daily is the Luke translation. Follow me. Okay? Are we doing that? Analyze the different things you do throughout the day. Do these things reflect a follower of Jesus? If Jesus were in my shoes, would he do some of these things that I do? Would he say some of these things that I say? Would he think some of the thoughts that I think? See, this is obviously very challenging. And then, But right behind that in verse 23, don't miss what the disciples miss. They, were, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. So this is the thing. No matter how bad it gets here, okay, I know that the best is yet to come. I truly believe that the best, most beautiful place on this planet is a shade, it's just a shadow of what the new earth will be like. And we will bodily live there forever. New heaven, new earth, it's real, it's forever, it's for us. And so if I believe that, then I live with less fear, if any fear. I live with less fear here and now. If I lose this life to die as, uh, to die as gain, to live as Christ, to die as gain, as Paul says. But what I'm observing in my life and others is that we don't really believe that. We live scared. We are clinging to this life as if this is all there is. And then we wonder why we're so worried or depressed or stressed It's because we're holding on to life like this instead of like this and saying, God, you can have it, a blank check. My life is a blank check. The last point is in this last section, starting in verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Jesus came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake 
and throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Just so you know, four drachmas is, is not an insignificant amount of money, okay? Um, and this is a weird, weird miracle, is it not? I mean, it doesn't happen in the moment. It happens later. But it happens. Think of the things that had to happen for this to work. Somebody had to drop a four drachma coin into the water. At some point, when they did that or after it's laying on the bottom, a fish comes along and says, ooh, shiny, must be good, and tries to eat it. The coin is big enough to get into his mouth or her mouth, but too big to get swallowed probably. So this fish is swimming around comically with a coin stuck in his mouth. Not to be a fast learner, goldfish brain maybe, uh, there's another shiny thing in the water. It's a hook at the exact time that Peter throws it in, in the exact place in this massive Sea of Galilee. He sees the hook, and he goes for it, and he pulls him out, and there's his coin in the fish. And he takes the coin, and he pays the taxes for it. Now, when, when, I, when, I, first, when I first read this, I kind of go, okay, um, what's he trying to say? Um, I th- taxes. Okay, pay your taxes. Okay, that kind of came to mind. And I'm thinking of Romans 13 where uh, Paul writes, submit to the governing authorities. And among other things, he says, pay your taxes. Okay, so it's really hard to not pay your taxes as a Christian because it says in the Bible, pay your taxes. And the context is to the government under which you live and where you're a citizen. So anyway, but that I don't think is the point, even though I think that's a valid point because it's talking about a religious tax. The temple tax was used to pay the people who worked there and to pay for the upkeep of the temple. Oh, so then maybe we can, we can make it go, okay, so maybe it means um, even though you don't like maybe how all the money is spent, you need to give to the church, and, you know, as you know, long as it's reasonable or whatever. It's like, okay, um, well, first of all, tithes and offerings are freely given. They're not a tax. So that really doesn't fly, but I think it's saying something different, and it comes into this key word of the word offense, so that we will not cause offense. So Jesus makes the case here that when a king says, I'm going to tax my nation, he doesn't tax his own family. Why? Because the money is going to impart this coming is going to them, so it doesn't make sense for them to pay a tax and then get it back. Now, I don't know if that applies to Congress. I'm not in favor of Congress people not paying taxes, but that's another. This is a little different, right? His family's going to directly reap the benefits of the tax. Why would they pay the tax? So they don't pay the tax. Then he says the parallel here is as God's, ki- as God's people, as we're citizens of God in his kingdom, we shouldn't have to pay any kind of religious tax, which I totally am in favor of that, okay? And Peter says that's correct, and Jesus says that's correct. You're right, Peter. You got it right. But so that we do not cause offense, Pause that. Think, I think of Jesus in the temple. I think of Jesus talking to the religious leaders when they go, what you said was very offensive to me, which is hilarious to me. And then other times when the disciples go, you know, you, were offensive. you offended the religious leaders. Jesus obviously had no problem offending people. So I think what he's saying here to Peter is, let's not be unnecessarily offensive. In other words, let's choose our battles. What hill are we going to die on? Because sometimes as Christians, we have rights. And we want our rights. Sometimes we have our, um, our issues, and I want to win my issue, right? And Jesus is like, okay, 
what's the main issue? What's the main thing? My professor, my missions professor in seminary used to say, what make, the main, make sure that, the, that he says the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. You know, I've noticed everybody uses that. But it really matters what the main thing is. And he would say it's the gospel mission to make sure that all people from all nations get to know, have multiple opportunities to hear, see, and believe, receive the gospel. So he says, you know what? We're going to pay the tax because this isn't the hill we're going to die on. Okay, this is kind of, you know, people say, well, Jesus didn't ever talk about how wrong slavery was, right? Because that's not the hill he was dying on. And you could pick your favorite issue, and Jesus didn't talk about that. It's because that's not the hill he came to die on. He came to die for your soul. And nothing comes close second to that. He's building a kingdom that will last forever. And there's nothing that comes close to that because he's going to restore all things under his headship. And so he's saying, Peter, make sure you keep the main thing the main thing. Do you think the American church has done a good job of that? Probably not. But we can't control that, can we? But we can control what we do. So maybe the next time you post something on social media, you might think about this verse. Next time you read something you want to post in reply to on social media, no, that never happens. Take a deep breath and ask yourself, will this cause unnecessary offense? The offense that we should be causing is sharing the gospel. That's it. The gospel is offensive. I don't have to be. Okay? When I am, then I'm just adding to it. I don't care if you're arguing theology or if you're arguing what color the carpet needs to be. Okay? And I think that's the last thing. Listen to him. Listen to him. Are we listening to him about being persecuted and that that's part of our, our, our role? Is it that, but there's ultimate victory in that. On the third day, he will be raised to life. The best is yet to come. This is not all there is. Are we listening to him in light of that? Are we listening to him and living humbly and confidently, not making side issues the main thing? but instead saying, I'm not going to cause unnecessary offense, but I am going to cause offense because I am going to faithfully share the gospel where I live, work, and play. Jesus paid it all so that we could live as, if, as people who follow the one who gave it all. It makes total sense that we would be a people saying, I'm living all for him, all for him I owe, and I'm, I'm giving him all. I'm surrendering all to him. It's not an accident that a lot of our songs have surrender in them and giving all because that's what he calls us to. So as you evaluate and think about yourself in this light, my prayer is that you will humble yourself like this man who got on his knees and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. And that you might say, Lord, have mercy on me as I figure this out because I want to reflect well on my rabbi because I want people to follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Rabbi, you are so much more than a good rabbi because you took my place on that cross and died for my sins so that I wouldn't have to, which left me with a debt to pay, a debt of love, of gratitude, for what you did for me. And you did for me something I could never do for myself. And Lord, we are surrounded every day by people who have the same need for mercy, 
And we are people who've received that mercy. Many of us know what that's like. And yet we keep it to ourselves. Lord, I pray we would exercise mustard seed faith on our knees, calling out to the Lord of lords, Lord, have mercy on my neighbor. Lord, have mercy on my kids. Lord, have mercy on my boss, my enemies, my fellow students, my teachers, my government leaders. Have mercy on me. May we be willing to be offensive when appropriate, not because we want to be offensive, but because we are faithful in sharing a gospel that oftentimes is received as that. And may we surrender the rights to all the other battles we could fight, not that we don't engage in any of those things, but that we engage them without unnecessary offense, that we would humbly, that we would humbly deal with those issues, remembering that the main thing is helping people find mercy through Jesus Christ for themselves. It's in his name we pray. Amen.